I was recently meeting with a conversion student, and he asked me, what was it that I found most powerful or most impressive about Judaism? I was captured, I was brought back to early childhood when I would be sitting in the sanctuary in the pews of my synagogue, and the rabbi would announce it was now time for Elenu. Even before I could read Hebrew, let alone translate any of it, I understood the powerful message of that grand prayer of Elenu, that message that services are almost over. And even at a young age, if I listened ever so closely, I swear you could hear the sound of the saran wrap coming off the plates of the Oneg cookies across the hall. But sadly, in these times of COVID, Onegs and Prenegs, they are on pause. So I had to think of something else that I could share about what I found powerful about Judaism. So this is what I told the student. What I love about Judaism is that righteous behavior, righteous living, is an end in itself. You shall be holy because I, God, am holy. You shall do what is right and what is just because it is right and because it is just, not because you should expect to receive anything in return. Our covenant with God is not transactional and not one based out of any obvious self-interest for us. Doing good is the reward, and the fact that it is good is reason to do it. So I said this, perhaps not quite as eloquently, but something along those lines. And then I remembered about this week's Torah portion. We are in Vayetze, in the book of Genesis, and reading about the life of Jacob. The parsha opens with Jacob's famous dream of angels coming up and going down the stairway. And with God telling Jacob, I am with you, I will protect you. And with Jacob saying the famous words, Achen yesh Adonai b'makom hazeh v'anochi lo yadati, surely Adonai is present in this place. And I did not know it. Following this, Jacob says something else. He makes a neder. That word might sound a little familiar from a few months ago with the opening service of Yom Kippur, kol nidre. Neder, or nidre, they mean vow. As the scholar Nahama Leibowitz notes in her commentary, this is the first vow in the entire Torah. The very first pledge anyone offers. And what is the very first promise made in the Torah? This is what Jacob vows. If God remains with me, if God protects me on this journey that I am making and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safe to my father's house, Adonai shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's abode, and of all that you give me, you, God, give to me, Jacob. I will set aside a tithe, a tenth, for you. To boil that down in simpler terms, Jacob is vowing, God, if you are good to me, then I will return the favor and I will worship you. And if that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, know that you are in the company of the most contemporary commentaries. Company of contemporary commentaries. I practice that. Not enough. The Torah, a woman's commentary, writes of Jacob driving a hard bargain with God. 
An essay in the Reform Movement's commentary goes further, saying that whatever we call this vow, it is not a quote-unquote proper prayer. The professor Robert Alter calls Jacob a suspicious bargainer, while reminding us of his other negotiations, having his hungry brother Esau exchange his birthright for a meal, and what he will do in the future when he interacts with his uncle Laban. Perhaps not surprisingly, previous generations have viewed Jacob's vow differently. We have to remember from their perspective, Jacob, along with the other patriarchs, was by definition pure in his motives. He did not make mistakes. He did not succumb to moral failings. He couldn't. He was a patriarch in their eyes. So how do they understand just what Jacob is saying when he says, if God remains with me and protects me and feeds me, then I will worship God? Abarbanel reminds us that this was Jacob's first prophetic dream. How could he even know what this was, that this was prophecy, that this was true, that this was not just an ordinary dream? Perhaps, Abarbanel suggests, Jacob was saying, if these things actually happen, then I'll know that this dream was actually real, and I will then maintain this contract that was put forth in this dream. But if it was all made up, then I'm not going to... It's a bad idea to just follow things we dream about, right? That's one suggestion. Another commentator, the Radak, suggests there was no transaction here at all, but rather humility mixed with fear. He reads Jacob as saying, if I am safe on this journey, if I make it back in one piece, then and only then will I be able to worship God. Put another way, it's as if saying, if the surgery goes well, then I'll be there for Yom Kippur. That is not a negotiation. That is something entirely different. That, that is an acknowledgement that whether you're going for surgery, going on a journey, or just going to sleep for the night, there are no guarantees. And phrasing commitments with this in mind, that is a sign of virtue. So the reading goes. But you may sense a complication with this explanation. While it's true that there are no guarantees, in Jacob's case, there actually was. Remember, he had his dream. He had a dream where God said to him, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. If it strikes us as unseemly to negotiate with the divine, how much more so if the divine has just made you an explicit promise on God's word? And this leads us to perhaps the greatest insight that our commentators can offer. The Midrash explains this teaches us there is no promise for the righteous in the world. There is no promise for the righteous in the world. Nahama Leibowitz helps us make sense of what this Midrash is trying to say. She writes, the righteous cannot assume that they have been granted an irrevocable title deed to comfort and protection and have no longer to stand in awe of their master, but can do as they like. On the contrary, she says, we stand in judgment at every moment of existence, and at any time, God's judgment can change. Many of us spend a lot of time wondering if we are good people. 
But perhaps that's not the right question we should be asking ourselves. Being a good person, it's not like being a brown-eyed person. It is not a characteristic beyond our control or beyond our ability to change. A more useful question would be, was I a good person today? And that is the message of this Midrash. No matter how good you think you are, or even how good God thinks you are, you have free will, and it is up to you what you end up doing tomorrow. The Midrash teaches us that should Jacob lose his way, God's protection is also going to disappear. And understanding this, Jacob prays, God, may I remain righteous. May I not be tempted towards sin so that I will continue to merit your protection that you promised. And that will allow me to return and be able to devote my life to you. This is a much different reading than, if you help me, I will worship you as my God. So, it's a fair question to ask, which reading is right? What was Jacob actually saying when he made this vow? It is fashionable to point out the shortcomings of our biblical ancestors, and I have certainly done that before. And with Jacob, it's especially tempting. He did have his possibly starving brother give him his birthright for some soup, and he did pretend to be his brother and lie to his father in order to get that birthright. But, as the Midrash reminds us, our character, our virtue, it is not fixed. It is not permanent. Jacob begins his life making a number of poor choices. By the end of his life, he is transformed to someone else. But at this point, when this scene takes place, he is somewhere in between. So was he making a shrewd negotiation? Or was he praying for his own strength to continue to choose the good when his desires inevitably pointed him down a different path. And of course, we don't know. We can read him any way we want. But I suggest there is something powerful about reading him as the Midrash suggests. Not because he is a patriarch and we want him to have impeccable character. No, it's because too often we're tempted to read him critically. We know his backstory. We know he has, up until now, not been a particularly sympathetic character, at least for many of us. We assume the best in the people we like and the worst in the people we don't. But people are not one-dimensionally good or bad. They, we, we are all going through life confronted with possibilities, sometimes choosing one way, sometimes another. There are qualities we are born with. There are qualities that we develop over time. But righteousness, that is something else. It's a description that only really applies once our lives have ended. Once the totality of our life has passed and others can look back and assess our deeds. I, for one, suggest we read Jacob favorably here, both because it causes us to begrudgingly remember even the worst people, they can do amazing good. And also because this reading teaches us our character is not something 
that we inherit and it is not fixed. It is something not only within our control, but something that takes renewed effort with every decision we make every day. Have I been a good person today? And God, please give me the strength to be a good person tomorrow. Kenya Hiratzon, may it be God's will.